Well, uh, thank you again for being with us today uh, as we continue to remember. Um, yeah, James is sitting at the airport right now. Uh, I was thinking about uh, one, of the, one of the recent times I've been on an airplane. Has anyone never, I've never been on an airplane before? Anyone never flown before? Okay, everyone has. Okay, so within a, a, on an airplane, there's certain, um, uh, certain rows called exit rows, which um, just like they sound are rows that lead to exits, emergency exits. And I was sitting in an emergency exit row, and I like to sit there because I like to help people out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was sitting there because it has more leg rows. So I was sitting in one of these exit rows, and there was three other people in the exit row with me. I didn't know who they were. And the flight attendant came to, uh, came to us, and she said, are you aware that you're sitting in an exit row? And we said, yes, we are aware. And she said, are you willing and able to help out in the event of an emergency? We said, yes, we are. And she said, okay, I need to give you a few instructions. So she's giving us the instructions. I'm listening to her, but I'm looking at the other three guys. One of them has his eyes closed, listening to his iPod. Another one is playing on his phone. And another one is sitting there with a magazine open while this lady is talking to us. And I thought, wow, how disheartening it must be to a flight attendant when she has a message that the people desperately need to hear that could help and save so many people, but they're not paying attention. And I said, now you know what it's like to be a pastor. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I thought to myself, well, what do you do? Okay, what do you do when you've got a message that people need to get, but they're not listening? I don't know if you've been on recent flights, but on uh, recent flights these days, instead of having a person go there and give this like boring spiel about, uh, here's your seatbelt, this is how you stick it in, like no one knows how to do a seatbelt. They put in a seatbelt, they said, you know, when the lighted sign comes on, uh, don't be smoking and all that stuff. Instead of having a person do that, they have these videos that do that now. Have you seen some of these videos? Some of them are super funny. Uh, Delta Airlines is a really, really funny one. Uh, Virgin America, really funny. So that, that's kind of the trend because they realize that if people are not listening to what we have to say and what we have to say is very important, then we have to change the medium and change the method with which that's communicated. This was kind of the issue confronting the prophets of the Old Testament. They had a message that the people of God deeply, desperately needed to hear. But the people were playing on their iPhones, playing on their cell phones, reading their magazines. And they said, I don't need to hear what you have to hear. And so God would have to go to drastic measures in order to communicate the message to them. We're going to get to that in just a second. But let me set the table again for those of you who need to be reminded. Um, After King Solomon, who's a third king of Israel, there was a civil war in the people of God. So the Israelites were divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, 10 tribes, the southern kingdom called Judah, two tribes, okay? 10 tribes in the north, Israel, two in the south called Judah. And the prophet said, listen, if you guys don't repent then God's going to bring judgment on you guys. So he's speaking to the nor- they're speaking to the northern kingdom first, and they don't repent. And so the Assyrian Empire comes, and they swoop down, and they take these guys, deport them, take them into exile, so that the Israelite, the northern kingdom, is no longer. And so the prophets are then speaking to the southern kingdom, saying, listen, if you don't shape up, you saw what happened in 722 BC when your northern, your northern counterparts were taken away. If you don't shape up, the same thing's going to happen to you guys. And so the, uh, the prophets are preaching to people like that in the southern kingdom, say, you've got to pay attention, you've got to listen up. And in about 606 BC, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of the Babylonians, comes and they attack Judah and they deport a group of the elite of the elites of Judah. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego 
And so the prophecy of Daniel, the book of Daniel, happens during that first deportation, 606 BC. They take the elites of Judah and send them into Babylon. In 597 BC, about nine years after that, King Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, get taken by King Nebuchadnezzar because they rebelled against the Babylonians. They rebelled. And so these people, along with 10,000 other people of God, Jewish people, were taken into exile as well. And one of these was a man named Ezekiel, about 25 years old. He also is taken away, deported. And when Ezekiel begins his prophecy, five years later, he's called to be a prophet, He begins his prophecy. He's the first of the prophets, the other being Daniel, who are preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah after they have been deported into Babylon. They've been stripped from their homes. Again, imagine this scenario where um, people, bad people, mean people, think of the worst people that you could think of, the meanest people that you could think of, whoever they might be. They come into central Florida. They come into Winter Garden. They come into Orlando. And they ransack their homes. This is kind of what's happening in, in the Middle East, isn't it? Where people who, who have the sign of, uh, of the Nazarene, they're being taken from their homes forcibly, taken to live in a different land, forced to, to, uh, to assimilate into a new culture, new religion. That's kind of what's happening with the people of God in the southern kingdom. And so they're taken away into that place. And it's in that place that Ezekiel begins to prophesy. I, I'm going to read from... a. Ezekiel chapter 37. I know this comes in the middle of it. 48 chapters in Ezekiel. The first half talks about, listen, this is what's going to happen to you. This is the bad news. And then the second half talks about the restoration that is to come. This is a good news. And chapter 37 comes in the second half, but I think it gives a good, clear summary of some of the main teachings of the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to read just verses 1 through 14, a powerful image and one of the clearest images that we see in the Bible, but also... Um, One of the clear images, Ezekiel was a man of visions. Jeremiah was a prophet of tears. Ezekiel was a prophet of vision. God showed him many things. And in here, chapter 37, we see a valley of bones. Chapter 37, verse 1, this is God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. But the sovereign Lord said to these bones, I'll make breath enter you. And you'll come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones 
are the whole house of Israel, northern and southern kingdoms. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I'll settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is God's word. So what is God saying through the prophet Ezekiel? What is this valley of dry bones all about? I think it's all about what God is doing amongst the people of God, both in the nation of Israel as well as in us as a people. But the first thing that we want to look at, I'll just give three thoughts as this is pretty predictable, but give three thoughts. The first thing that we look at here is that the exile, which is what's happening here, they've been deported, they're in exile, exiled from their home. The exile is a sign of God's judgment. The exile is God's judgment on the people. Okay? Exile is God's judgment. What does that mean? Basically, in this valley of dry bones, the image, the vision that is being shown to Ezekiel is a scene that you would see from Halloween Horror Nights. This is what's going on. It's a valley that's dark and it's vast, and it is filled, littered with the bones of people of Israel, of Judah. Okay? Filled with the bones of the people of God, the Jewish people. And the bones are dry, meaning that they're not just dead. They've been dead for a long time. The interesting thing, he's talking about, clearly taught this is a picture of death, as we know. But as I think about what is he showing forth here? And why does he use this image as he communicates with the people of Judah? What is he trying to say to them? In, in, in our days, we do a lot in order to and to soften the blow and the reality of death. That's why uh, Brittany Maynard was in the news this past week. You know Brittany May- uh, Maynard, right? The uh, dying with dignity, death with dignity, that she had this uh, stage four cancer, and she said, I'm going to die. I've got a couple months left to live. I'm going to choose when I die by taking pills that the doctor has given me. She made all this news because people are saying, no, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't choose when you're to die. But she does things and people do these things and people choose this route because they want to soften the blow of death. That's why we do things like Halloween Horror Nights because we want to make light in a sense of something that is deeply grave because we don't like it. It bothers us and it should. I I was looking at a a picture book with, uh, with, with Manny. It was a picture book, a photo collage of things that we'd made for one of Manny's birthdays. And it showed pictures of her going throughout her life. And there was one where she was, uh, she was in a picture with my brother's dog, my brother, his wife, and their dog, Cola. And as Manny was looking at that, she said, oh, there's Cola. And she said, does Cola still live with Uncle Terry? And she doesn't, Cola doesn't, because Cola passed away. And I was trying to think of how am I going to explain this? I said, no, Cola doesn't live with uncle and auntie anymore. She said, where is Cola? And so I said something silly, like, well, not something silly, but I said, I, I was kind of like I'm doing. I was stumbling for words. I said, Cola's in heaven. And she's like, how do you get to heaven? I said, well, <laughs> how does a dog get to heaven? I don't know. They have to die. I mean, they have to die. And I, I had this hard time because I don't like talking about death. I don't like thinking about death. And I think that's the way it ought to be, right? Because you know, a lot of times, like in, in, in Christian circles, 
because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, we, we kind of have this, this view where uh, we don't really have to feel the full weight of death. Right? Because though death is a doorway into the eternal and a continuation of life, which it is all those things, but it doesn't minimize the reality of what death is. And the Bible doesn't either. That's why Jesus, knowing, even knowing that Lazarus was going to rise again, he wept. Why? Because he knew the effects of sin in hurting the people who were weeping because of Lazarus' death. He didn't weep because, oh, I'm so sad that Lazarus is dead, because he was going to raise him to life in just a little bit. But he was weeping, John eleven thirty five, 35, because he knew that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. That's why Paul calls death the enemy, the last enemy, to be vanquished. He doesn't say it's a friend that we welcome because we're going to see Jesus. I mean, in a sense, we can say that. But at the same time, he calls death an enemy. He says death is something to be destroyed. It's something that is painful, that is awful. And God uses the most extreme image that justice, uh, death is God's judgment over sin. He's saying the exile uh, is akin to death in that it is judgment over the sin of the people and the house of God. This is what the exile is, right? This is not some glorious, all expenses paid trip to Babylon. That's not what it is. It's not, oh, at least I'm with my family because a lot of these families were torn asunder. Can you imagine this? I mean, you're, everything that they knew is being ripped apart and they're living, their names are being changed. A completely different identity. Think of uh, Kunta Kinte in Roots. Your name will be Toby. Everything about them, their identity, their behavior, their home, all of that stuff was stripped away. Their religion forcibly taken away from them. And God is saying, this is my judgment over your sin. He wants them to feel the full effect and the full weight of their disobedience in order that they know that this is God's judgment coming to them and that they deserved it. See, a lot of times, a lot of times God had said to them, if you don't repent, you don't turn to me, this is what's going to happen. But they continued to go on. They said, year after year, God's not doing anything. Year after year, generation after generation, God's not doing anything. And so they chose to live the way that they wanted to live. Not knowing what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient with us. He doesn't destroy us because he wants all to come to repentance. This is God's desire. That he prolongs his patience and that period of long suffering in order that we might come to him in repentance, but he's making clear through this valley of bones that the exile is judgment in the same way that as he compares it to death, that death is judgment over our sin. So this is a familiar scene, right? So it's a familiar scene in, in, in my family when we're, about to, we're sitting down and we're eating dinner and the kids, Manny and Elijah, are sitting, they're eating whatever we've set before them and then Elijah wants to be silly and so he takes his bowl of, of soup or bowl of rice and he puts it on his head or something with it or something like that. He pours it on the ground and he says, Manny, look. And he does something silly with it. And then Manny starts laughing. He starts giggling. And so Olivia and I are like getting frustrated. We're like, what are you guys doing? Right? This is not playtime. This is eating time. And so Elijah's like, no. And he's like playing. And he thinks it's the funniest thing that he's got a bowl of rice on his head and and he says, Manny, 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 look. And so we decide, okay, listen, listen, guys. If, if 
you finish eating in 20 minutes. Okay, if you finish eating in 20 minutes, we'll give you ice cream and we'll go for a walk. And they get really excited. For about a minute, they sit down and they're like, okay, 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 we're going to do it. And they start eating their food diligently. And then after a minute passes, Elijah gets this great idea that he's going to climb on the table and he's going to pull on the blinds and he's going to jump up and down. And he thinks it's so funny. And he starts doing these things. And then Manny, not wanting to miss out on the fun, she climbs up on the table also. And they start running around the living room. And they say, oh, I want to see baby. I want to play with baby. And they do all of these things, everything that they're not supposed to do. And so we say, okay, listen, you guys have 10 minutes to finish your food. 10 minutes or else it's going to be too dark. No going for a walk is going to be too late. No ice cream. And they're like, oh, and, and they run back to their chair and they run back to their table. And then they start eating. And then Elijah's putting rice up his nose. He's like, Manny, look at me, look at me. And and, and, and Manny's like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, you got to do it like this. And she takes a spoon and she puts it on. And they think it's the funniest thing. And so we say, listen, you guys have a lot of food left. You've got two minutes. Okay, two minutes and you got to finish your food. And they're taking their time. Two minutes passes. Ten minutes passes. Twenty-five minutes passes. And they're like, can we be done with our food? And we're looking at the food and they've, they, they've still got a ton of food left. We say, okay, take three more bites and you're done. So they take three more bites diligently. They're done. Like, okay, we're ready for our ice cream. They say, are you kidding me? You're not ready for ice cream. You didn't even finish your food. We gave you warnings. We gave you 10. We're not going for ice cream. They say, can we go for a walk then? They look outside and it's pitch black. We're like, no, you can't go for a walk. And Manny says, hey, that's not fair. And then Elijah says, hey, that's not fair. And we said, no, we gave you warnings. We said, if you don't do what we say, then we're not going to give you what we promised to you. And Manny starts crying, and she's like, no, no, I want to go outside. And then Elijah starts crying. He says, no, no, I want to go outside. But how? what are we supposed to do as a parent? Are we supposed to let them go outside? Or at a certain point, have they reached that place where we told them these are the parameters by which you need to, you need to understand what we're doing, what we're saying, and if you obey, then you have the promises. But if you don't, you've brought this upon yourself. Can they say to us, you're not being fair. You're not being fair. That's not right. You're so mean. See, when the Israelites, when the people of God are in exile, the first thought that comes to mind is, God, why are you doing this to us? This isn't fair. How could you do this to us? But are they right in saying that? Because you see, when you bring it forward to the 21st century, we do the same thing, don't we? We go through an entire semester not studying. We stay up all night playing video games. We pray like crazy for God to bless us on our final exams. We end up getting C's and D's, and then we complain to our house church, God didn't pull through for me. I think it would be funny if it wasn't so true to our situation. You know what I'm saying? We do all of these things for four years of college, and then we pray like crazy. We ask everyone to pray for us. We send out prayer requests. Pray for me. Pray for me to get into uh, to, to medical school. Pray for me to get into this school. Pray for me to get into that grad school. And we don't get in, and then we blame God. And we say, man, I, I've been praying for the last month, and, and I, I just all I wanted to do was get into one, one grad school, one business school. All I wanted to do was get a 30 on this test. We didn't get it. And then we complain to God. And then we doubt God. We say, God, you didn't pull through for me. We waste all of our, our time doing these things, living in sinful lifestyle, wasting our, our, our time and our, on all of these things, and then it comes back and it bites us in the backside, and then we say, God, why? Why are you doing this to me? I'm not saying that every hardship that we go through is, is judgment, is exile. I'm not. That's the last thing I'm saying. 
But what I am saying is if we're living sinfully and God gives us the consequences for that sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And God was making that crystal clear to the people of God that this is judgment over your sins, over years and years and years of ignoring the voice of God, of ignoring the prophets, of ignoring the teachings, of ignoring the things that I'm saying. And you've ignored it for long enough. And because you've ignored it, you have no one. You can't blame me. I was patient with you for all of these years. But the exile is a sign of God's judgment. This is what he says. That's what he says in verse 11. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. Uh, We're cut off because of our sin. This is what happens. The first thing that he's showing is that the exile is a sign of God's judgment. But the second thing that we see is that when all is stripped, when everything is stripped away, uh, we can see that God is enough. So they're basically everything that they know and everything that they've had has been taken from them. In fact, Ezekiel chapter one begins where they're on the, on the edge of a river. And Ezekiel, this former priest is slaving away, trying to build a, a, a way for the king who has oppressed them and taken them into slavery. And as they're sitting there, apart from everything that they know, right, they're left alone for all these years in exile. It would be 70 years of exile. They're left alone to think. Right, what is God doing? What is God saying? Because you know that when we're stripped of things, it gives us the opportunity to think and to hear and to see things that we didn't see before. It's what we do during Lent. It's what we do during detox, isn't it? I I remember talking about this experiment where a bunch of people went out to eat and they all put their cell phones in the middle of the table. The first person to touch their cell phone has to pay for the meal for everybody. And they said that was the most fruitful conversation they've had in the longest time because no one was on their phones. You know how it is that when we're stripped of these things, we can really focus on the things that are important, don't you? That's why we fast. That's why we're fasting and praying. That's why we have seasons of fasting and prayer at our church so that we can be stripped away. That's why fasting and prayer retreat is so powerful because not only are we stripped of food that we use to cope with a lot of the pain and the hurt in our lives, we're stripped of everything else and we go into the wilderness and we've got the word of God, we've got ourselves and for an extended period of time, we think and we pray and we listen to God. Because when we're stripped of all of these things, this is what we do. This is why Kenny went out to Georgia this past weekend, right? Because he wanted to hike and to walk through the trails of Georgia, just to be apart, be away from everything. In a place where Wi-Fi was virtually non-existent. He didn't have his computer, didn't have his TV, didn't have friends, didn't have anything. Just a walking stick. He had his GoPro so he could document everything. But he's walking around in that place. A lot of time to think. To think about I wonder if I can run faster than a bear (laughs) to think about the different things that are happening in his life, to process through these things apart from all of the stuff of life, a lot of time to pray. Help this bear not to eat me, help this bear to go, to pray about different things. And he said at the end of the time, he was able to feel and to think so many different things. And as he was processing through He said, these are the very things that I'm going to be thinking and feeling when I go 
on missions, to feel loneliness as he's walking alone, to feel fear, to feel whatever the, the emotions and the feelings that being apart, stripped of everything that he knows, leads him to feel. There's a gift. Even in the exile, it's a gift to the people of God. Am I enough? You've got, you don't have the temple anymore. You don't have the law anymore. You don't have any of these things that you used to define yourself and define your relationship with God by. All those things are gone. Is God enough? Am I enough? He's asking the people of God. One of the ways that we, we get our kids, and, and I know a lot of parents do this, and, and, and on the other hand, a lot of parents don't do this because they don't feel like it's appropriate, but uh, we do this with our children. The other day, uh, Manny and Elijah were playing in, in Manny's room, and then Manny started crying, and she ran out to where we were in the living room. And she said, ah, she's crying, she's crying, she's crying. And she said, yeah, yeah, bit me. And so uh, we've had this conversation many a time. We said, where did Elijah bite you? And so she said, on my back. So we lifted up her shirt. And lo and behold, there were two, you know, bite marks there. And so we said, okay. So we went to, uh, into uh, Manny's room where Elijah was singing a song. Not making eye contact. He knew that we were coming in. But he's like, sees us and he's like, da, na, 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 na. Jesus loves me. Said, Elijah. He's like, yeah. He's not looking at us. Elijah, look at daddy. He looks up. Said, Elijah, did you bite Nanny? Said, no. Said, are you sure? Yes. Said, Manny, come here. Elijah, look at this. Whose teeth are these? Did you bite Manny? Said, no. I said, are you sure? Did you bite her a little? He said, yes, a, a little. <laughs> so he said, okay, let's go. Let's go. We're going to go timeout. So we took him in a timeout corner, and we sat him down, and he's crying, and he didn't want to be in timeout. So after a couple minutes, we went over to him. I said, Elijah, stand up. So he stood up. He's crying. I said, Elijah, I love you. I gave him a hug. He said, I love you, Papa. I mean, I love you, Daddy. And he said, okay, do you have something to say to Manny? So he ran over to Manny. He said, I'm sorry, Manny. And he gave her a hug, and then he went back to doing what he was doing. Why do we give time out? Because who, and, and just bear with, because a person Elijah was when he entered into time out, a denying my sin, angry, biting my sister kind of a brother, to walking out repentant, saying, I'm sorry, Manny, for what I've done. That's the purpose of having a time out, that they would think about what they're doing. And they would repent of what they did, realize their faults and realize their flaws and realize that they've messed up so that they could go back to the one whom they've offended and say, I'm sorry, and I don't want to do this again. The Israel was put in a 70-year time out so they could think about what they've done. They could think about all of the things, the ways in which they've sinned in order that on the backside of that, they would come out in repentance saying, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I've done. Because God's purpose in the exile is not just punitive, it is restorative. It's not just to, to punish them for what they've done, it's to restore them into a right relationship with him. And so God was doing that with Israel, with Judah, with the people of God, with the Jewish nation, in order that they could repent of their sins. Because they were hard-headed and they were stiff-necked and it took them a long time. It was hard for them to come to a place of repentance. 
And so God was putting them through the exile to wean them, to strip them of everything that they held on to so that God would be everything so that they could turn back and say, you know what, life with you was so much better than life under the oppressive regime of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we repent and we turn back to you. That's the point. That's the purpose. You see, when God strips us of things of life, his whole point and his purpose is to wean us away from the things of life, the things that we use to define ourselves. Maybe some of y'all who are praying to make it to the next level in your education, you won't get in. I know this happens because this happens to many. It's happened to me. It's happened to a lot of people. And in the midst of that, the question that God asks constantly as we deal with another rejection letter, as we deal with another job interview that says, I'm sorry, but we found somebody else, as we deal with uh, the, the bad news of different things, dreams deferred and dreams delayed and all these things, could be that the question God is asking is, are these things that you use to define yourself defining you or am I enough for you? You can hear me now and believe me later. But countless times, this has been the experience of so many saints through, of old. As I, talk with, I was talking with Casey one Sunday after church, I was asking her how her worship in, in Korea has been. And she said, you know, I, it, it's all good, but um, I miss being with our church. And she said one Sunday after church, she said, the, um, you know, this is right, this is the Sunday after she got her cancer diagnosis. Unexpected, completely unexpected. You know, our, our, our thought was that it would be benign. The doctor would come back, say it's no big deal, just remove that. And then that Tuesday got word that it's cancerous. So how do you, how do you, how do you respond to that? You go into worship service carrying the weight of that. Apart from her husband, apart from her children, apart from her church, in a sense, not because of sin, but in a sense being exiled. And she said, there's one song, though, that really, really brought encouragement. This song has brought encouragement to many of us. It's, it's definitely for me and for, for others of us. It said, draw me close to you. And there's this part in that song that says, you're all I've ever needed. Help me know that you are near. Can you imagine that? And I said, I can't, I can't imagine how meaningful and significant those words were to you in that situation. And when all is stripped away in our lives, when all these things are taken from us, it's a chance for us to see that God is enough for us, that he is all that we need. It's, we can say he's all we need, all we want, but it's only when he's all we've got that we see that he's really all we need. We can talk all we want when we're living in the land of plenty, that God is all I need. I don't really need the money. I don't really need the car. I don't really need the house. I don't really need my health. I don't need these things. I don't need these. He's all I need. But it's only when he's all we have that we can really say that he's all we need. And it's when we're stripped of all of these things like the Israelites were in the exile that we really begin to understand and see that. Maybe for us, this is something that God is trying to say to us, to ask us, am I enough for you?
the last thing that we see in the midst of that exile is he's preaching to these exiled Jews under the oppressive hand of an evil king. He says, the story isn't over yet. Story is not over yet. A few weeks ago, I was, at, it was a Sunday afternoon. I was at home and I don't know exactly what the occasion was, but there's a, a bunch of people at our house and our house is not big. So we're kind of, you know, people are bumping into each other in different rooms. I was getting my hair cut and uh, I had a big old Afro at the time. That's what people were telling me. I was trying to grow it out, but Olivia said, no, not in my, <laughs> not as long as you're my husband, you're getting that thing cut. And so I got my hair cut and people were walking in and one person decided that in the middle of my haircut, big Afro on top, shaved tight on the sides, looked like Super Mario mushroom. Uh, someone decided to take a picture. They said, ah, ha, ha, this is really funny. So they took a picture, and I said, that's cool. But I wasn't worried when I looked at myself in the mirror. Even though I looked like a fool, I wasn't worried. You know why? Because the barber wasn't done yet, and because she still had her clippers in her hand. Because we're not done yet. The message of the valley of dry bones is that God's not done yet. God's not done yet. In the middle of the, the, these bones, right, sucked dry, eaten by animals, eating all the flesh off of it. Bones, that's all there are. Scattered, as far as eyes could see. Scattered bones, people dead. A clearest picture of death. In fact, death when you're not buried properly, this was a sign that you're cursed. Only the people who are your worst enemies or foreigners would have a graveless burial. This is awful. The people of God are under a curse because of their sin. And in the midst of that, God says in verse 3, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? You've got a bone here, a bone here, scattered everywhere. This is about the end of the picture as you can. This is about the end of the, as, as close to the end as you can think. The narrative is done. It's over. There's nothing left. But God says to Ezekiel, can these scattered bones live? If I was Ezekiel, I'd be like, <laughs> looks, about, looks about done to me. But look what he says. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. He's saying, if it's possible, then you, you, God, you can do it. You know. It's the same thing that Jesus said in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, look, unless you eat of me and drink my, uh, my blood, you can have no part with me. And he says, after that, many disciples began to desert Jesus. This is hard stuff. You got you to give everything you have. And so Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? And one of them said, this is like, I, I love this because it's so significant. They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Like, feel the weight of that. He's just given them some extremely difficult news. That to follow me, you've got to lay it all down. He's like, you still want to follow? And they're like, I know that this is hard. I know that my situation is not easy. I know that people are going to hate me for following you. But where else are we going to go? Because you have the words of life. We don't know where else to go. We know there's, that following is difficult. But there's no better place to be than following you. Because no one else can take care of, you, uh, take care of us the way that you can. 
No one else is as good as you. No one else is as wise as you. No one else is as strong as you. Where else are we going to go but to you? This is what Job said. God, you're afflicting me and all these things are happening, but who else am I going to go to? How can I stop worshiping? How can I stop trusting? Because no one else is going to be able to do for me what you can do. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. God, living for you is hard, but the only thing harder is not living for you. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? And so what God is saying to and through Ezekiel is that the story is not done yet. It's not done yet. It's not done. These scattered bones, God says, begin to, to prophesy, speak to them, and bones start coming together. They start rattling together, and all these things are happening. I looked in the tendons and flesh, and skin covers them, but there was no breath. It's like, a, it's like a, a, a dead person. And he says, breathe into them. Speak the breath of life into them. And he breathes the breath of life. And then these individual scattered bones everywhere rise up. They become a vast army. And God is saying, listen, here's the point. Here's the point, Ezekiel. Here's the point, people. Understand this simple thing. That even though you're scattered in exile, this is judgment over your life. The story's not done yet. Restoration is coming. The people of God are going to come back together and you're going to become a mighty army that's going to march through this land. The story is not done yet. The story's not done yet. You're in the middle of a haircut. You look at yourself, but don't worry because the best is yet to come. You believe this? You believe that the best is yet? The story's not done. That's why I don't give up on a church when I don't see fruit. I don't, that's why I don't give up on, on youth students when I don't see fruit in their lives. I don't give up on people in our congregation that you guys are praying for, that we're praying for, to be changed and come to know Jesus. We don't give up because we're seeing them in the middle of their haircut. They're not done. God's not done with them yet. God's not done with them yet. Don't give up on them because God hasn't. Don't give up on them. The story's not done yet. Don't give up in the middle of your prayer. Some people, I hear stories of people that prayed 40 years for somebody to come to know Jesus. Three, I forget who it was, Spurgeon, Moody, one of these guys prayed for three guys for 40 years. And at the 30th year, one guy gave his life to the Lord, 38th year, another guy did. Another guy didn't give his life to Christ until after this dude was dead. But 38 years, 40 years of prayer. Can you imagine some guy at the 39th year saying, you know what, I prayed 39 years. I don't want to pray anymore. I don't, don't want to pray anymore. Just keep on going. Your answer could be at the 40th year of praying. God's not done yet. The story's not done yet. I was talking with Brother Paul last night. Then he was saying, do you remember the movie The Incredibles? I remember the movie. But I didn't remember the scene he was talking about. So I looked it up on YouTube this morning. The scene where the incredible family is living in this house, Bob Parr, he's the dad, the overweight, incredible superhero. And he comes home one day from his life as an insurance salesman. This little dude on his tricycle comes up and he's just sitting there. And Bob looks at him. He says, what are you waiting for? The kid goes, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. And this dejected, about to give up, quote unquote incredible, says, okay, maybe there is something worth waiting for. And three times he comes back again and again. And the, the dad says, what are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. People ask you, why do you keep praying? What are you waiting for? 
and you look them in the eyes, you look at the valley of dry bones and you say, something amazing, something amazing. That's what I'm waiting for. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for something amazing in the lives of people that we're praying for. I'm waiting for something amazing as we pray for Casey. I'm waiting for something amazing as I, as I pray about the people that I wrote about in our letter, in my letter to you, in the insert of your bulletin. I'm waiting for something amazing because I know that the story's not done. You look at Baba, you look at Judah in 586 BC, you look at them in 570 BC, they look like they're trashed. It's the end of the story, that's it. But in 539, they would be sent back because the story's not done, because God's not done yet. Restoration is coming, and God's not finished. Think about these people, man. Think about these people that were living in the time that Jesus was walking the earth. All right, here's Jesus. He's walking around, and you see this leper following him. If you're a leper, you don't get better. Lepers don't reverse their leprosy. In fact, it gets worse and worse. They lose their nerve endings. They don't feel anything. So they bang their head on a microphone and their fingers fall off. Oh, oh, I don't have fingers anymore. But they don't feel it because leprosy kills their nerves. They don't get any better. Fingers don't grow back, right? It doesn't happen. They're not like lizards. Their tail grows back or whatever. They're not like that. Lepers don't get better. And so here they are following Jesus around. Jesus turns around. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. And Jesus touches them, and the lepers are healed. He walks a little bit further, sees a crippled dude laying there. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Aren't you, Jesus? Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And he goes running and leaping and praising God. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? A blind guy walking, begging on the roadside. Jesus looks at him, what do you want? I don't know. Maybe something amazing too, just like I heard all these other guys do. The same Jesus that did something amazing back then. These guys, their story's over. Men bring in their dead kids. People bring in their dead daughter. He walks and everyone's like, she's dead. Don't bother the teacher. You know, she's just sleeping. Little girl, I say to you, get up. People are laughing. No, no, no. Their laughter of disbelief turns into a laughter of those who've seen the miracles of God. What are you waiting for? The story's not done yet. The story is not done yet. The story is not done in your life. It's not done in the lives of your students. It's not done in the lives of the people that you're praying for. God's not done yet. We don't look at a person in the middle of a haircut and say, they're so ugly, I don't want to be with them. No. You understand that they're still being worked on. He's not done with those people. He's not done with your situations. God is still at work to restore and to redeem. People followed Jesus to the cross. He died on a cross. The devil said to these people at the cross, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's dead. It's over. What are you waiting for? And dejectedly, they walked back home. But on the third day, they went to a tomb. There were angels there. There were people there. What are, you, what are you looking for? Whatever they were looking for was not there. Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't there. Because the story wasn't over at Calvary. Continued on to an empty grave. And when Jesus in John 20 meets a frightened group of disciples who had heard that Jesus was alive, what does it say? It says that Jesus walked in there and he breathed on them. And these fearful, scared people rose up into a mighty army. 
that marched throughout that Roman Empire and proclaimed the kingdom of God. That Jesus, the one who was exiled at the cross, came back for our restoration, breathed into a valley of dry bones and gave life. And he's still doing the same thing today. He's still doing the same thing today. He's going to do that in our situations. He's going to do that in our lives. So we wait. Yeah, we wait. But we don't wait simply passively. We wait prayerfully. And we wait with bated breath because we know that God is not done. We know that the story is not over. We know that the narrative is not finished. We know that he hasn't put his pen down. He's still working on it. And when they ask us, what are you waiting for? With confidence, with confidence, we say we're waiting for something amazing to happen. Let's pray. My friends, what are the places in your life where you need something amazing to happen? There will be naysayers who say to you, you know what? Why even bother? Why even bother? Because we know the one in whom we've placed our trust. I promise you, man, there are a lot of prayers that have, as of yet, been unanswered in my life. I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for them. But I know that God's not done. I know that in the season of waiting, he's showing me, teaching me. He's saying, DLA, listen, am I enough for you? Am I enough? Am I enough for you as you wait for your amazing to happen? I talked with someone last night who earlier in this week, they were at the end of their rope in certain areas of life, about to be homeless, about to be financially at the end of it all. But last night, two emails later, they got their amazing and they're still waiting for more. God is in the business of writing stories and where others say the end, he says to be continued. It's not done yet. Guys, let's let faith arise. The ruins are going to come to life. God's not done. He's not done. Let's bring these situations before the Lord God. Let's pray in your life, in the lives of those who've lost this week, in the lives of those who are going through hardship, in the lives of house church members, people who need to know that God's not done. Pray for that in them. Pray for that in KC and James and their family. Pray for that in the lives of those who need desperately to know that God's not done, that he's not finished. Let's pray together for a moment right now. Let's pray. Lift them up before the Lord God. Pray for these situations. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Lift your voice if you need to. I I know God hears your whispers, but sometimes, sometimes if you're drowning, if you're drowning in a river, you're drowning in a pool, even though the person who's going to rescue you is right next to you, you scream out. You call out because you're desperate for them, because you need them. You need their help. And maybe if you're in a place like that, you need to call out to God. I don't know where you are, but let's just be honest. Let's be earnest with God. Let's pray. Say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. Help me to believe the story's not done. Help me to believe that the narrative isn't finished. Help me to believe that the pen is still in your hand and you're writing a greater story than I know. And let's pray together for a few moments. Jesus, we need you. Lord Almighty, we need you. God Almighty, we need you. Father, we're desperately in need of your touch. Father, we pray that you would rise within us, Lord God.
Can we uh, pray? You can hold hands with the people next to you if you want. You can put your hand on their back. But guys, sometimes we need to know that we're not alone in this. And maybe the person next to you is going through some unseen challenges in life. And your prayer can unlock something amazing within them. Your prayer could be the catalyst where they believe again, where they hope again, where they might have another week of strength to go on. And in this week that God would give them an answer to a prayer that they've been praying for for the longest time. Let's pray for one another and praying uh, for God's blessing, for something beautiful, something powerful to happen within them. Let's pray. Let's lift each other up right now in prayer. God Almighty, we moment we're going to sing a song about the God who allows ruins broken parts of our lives to come to life and as we sing the song I just want to invite you to take those things, those fears, those ruins those pains, those unfinished stories and just hold them in your hand and just lift up your hands to the Lord as we sing asking the Lord God that the ruins would come to life in the beauty of his name. God wants to do that. So that at the end of it all, that people would see that he is God. They would see that he is God. So Father, we pray that the message of Ezekiel 37 would be as relevant and as pertinent to us as it was to the Jews in exile. That you would allow the dry bones of our lives scattered throughout in the valley of death to come together to be breathed on in order that life would be formed, that life would come out of death, that order would come out of chaos, that hope would rise up out of the brokenness and out of the pain and out of the wondering and the questioning of why the story looks the way that it does, of why our lives look the way that they do. We pray, Father, that you would remind us that the story is still being written and the best is yet to come. This is the hope for every child of God. This is the hope for every believer. May hope arise, may faith arise, especially amongst those who need it the most. Father, we need you. We declare our trust in you because, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? For you have the words of life. May we put our trust in you, and as we respond to your word, may we tangibly show our faith in you. We thank you. We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.